0: listening to the Sojourn Montrose sermon podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Um, Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Cole. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a joy and an honor to be with you uh, this morning as we have an opportunity to continue uh, walking through the book of Genesis, specifically the portion of Genesis that deals with the life of Abram. And Genesis 16 is, I mean, it's a, a really key passage in the life of Abram, and there's so much here, and there's no way that we're going to even scratch the surface of all that this text has for us this morning. But, but really, what I want us to be able to focus on is there are three main characters in Genesis 16: in Sarai and Hagar and Abram, and all of them uh, sin in various ways. All of them um, wander from the things that God has for them in various ways. And in the midst of that, we get a beautiful picture of God's love and his mercy for people, even in their sin, in affliction, in oppression, and in being oppressors. And so in all of that, um, there is good news for you. Uh, There's good news. This text really shows that there is good news for all sorts of people, for all kinds of people um, whom God sees. And so let's pray and see what the grace of the Lord is for us in this passage. Uh, Father, we, we come to you this morning and we thank you that you've given us your word and in your word you have revealed yourself to us and that alone is grace that you would reveal yourself to us and that who you have revealed yourself to be is beautiful and marvelous and it gives us hope and so this morning as we look at you in your word would you allow us to see the beauty of your love for us manifest primarily in your son Would you allow us to see ourselves in all of our affliction and in all of our wickedness and in all of our need for you? And then, Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would allow us to see us the way you see us, and that we would be transformed this morning from one degree of glory to the next as we take hold of you with faith, as we're transformed by your grace. I pray that you would allow us to to take on the life that you have given us to live, which sometimes is, is difficult and painful and arduous, a life in which patience is necessary. And would you bolster us by the power of your Spirit? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that, that I think is important to realize in this text is that patience is really hard, right? Like, who, like it's hard to be patient. Amen? Yeah, people agree with that. I mean, I remember being a a kid and being taught all about patience Um, as we hear kids being taught about patience. um, We will hear that this morning, I'm sure, uh, before and after the gathering, being taught that patience is a virtue and that it's a fruit of the Spirit. And I remember being commanded by adults constantly to be patient. Um, but it was hard to be patient. It's hard to be patient when you're a kid and cake isn't going to be served at the party for two more hours. It's hard to wait for Christmas Day to open presents when it's just December 3rd and they're already appearing uh, under the table. It's hard as you get older to to be patient enough to, to wait and to be old enough to drive a car or to stay up late or to do certain things without adult supervision. It's hard to be patient, and then you grow up and you realize that there are things that are so much harder to wait for than cake and Christmas presents and driver's license. There are these deep longings that you find in your heart that waiting for really makes your heart sick. That's, that's the language that the scriptures has. Proverbs 13 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And a sick heart, we will learn, is a vulnerable heart. And in Genesis 16, Sarai and Abram have vulnerable hearts. So in Genesis 15, God makes this covenant with Abram and his family, a covenant to bless them and to make of them a great nation in the land of Canaan. And, and they've experienced disproportionate blessings since God has called them out of their former life and former land. But the reality is, is now they've been in Canaan for 10 years. They're getting old. God promised them a child and still Sarai is barren. In the text, it begins this way. In the first three verses, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. This text begins in a way that for any of us who are familiar with the scriptures, especially with this book of Genesis, will make us think of one event, and it's the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. Um, in, in, In the situation in the Garden of Eden... Eve is tempted by the serpent to, to take of this fruit from the tree that she was commanded not to eat from and she tells her husband that, that the fruit has tree that is good and he takes it and eats it. Hear this in Genesis 3:6, It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Sarai has become like Eve, tempting her husband to seek a blessing outside of the will of God. She wants her family to bear fruit, but unfortunately, the fruit that she is reaching for is not the fruit of promise. It is not the tree of life, and and the typology of Sarai being like Eve is significant here. She takes and gives to her husband, Abram, and Abram, like Adam, listens to the voice of his wife when he should have corrected her and protected her and led her back gently into the way of the Lord. And the sin that we read about in Genesis 16 is it's grievous sin. And when I first read through it at the beginning of this week as I prepared, it truly made me nauseous to think about um, and because when we read this passage through the lens of our cultural moment and our place in the history of redemption, we are tempted toward being like utterly appalled by what takes place. As a twenty first century Westerner, I read Genesis sixteen, and I see a powerless woman oppressed, treated like a sexual object, and considered only for what she can provide to a man and his family and his blessing. and And that's gross, right? And I'm not going to defend Sarai's choice here at all, her, her solution here at all, or what Abram does, but I do want to warn us that if we get caught up in that perspective that is so marked by our moment and our placement in history, we'll miss some of what's going on in the text. See, what Sarai and Abram did was wrong in the eyes of the Lord. There's no question about it. God designed marriage in the scriptures to be monogamous and he despises all throughout the scriptures the oppression of the weak and, and using the weak to, for your own gain. And yet, we read this text and we see it through a lens also knowing that our culture would find this sort of behavior and decision appalling. But that was not true for Sarai and Abram. They lived in, in a culture where there were law codes in Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern cultures that actually had provisions for this exact sort of thing. For a situation where a, a man could, had not yet borne an heir to his family, to, to his property, but especially to carry on his name, to keep his family in existence. And so there were law codes that, that allowed for the wife to give one of her female slaves to the husband in hopes of having a male heir. And so Sarai is is not doing something that she sees as totally wicked. Instead, she's planning to use the wisdom and freedoms of the world to accomplish the things that God said he would do. And when we think of it this way, I think we can have some understanding and even empathy for Sarai. I mean, here's a woman who lives in a society that even more so than ours the, the value and dignity and glory of a woman was dependent upon her fertility and especially her ability to provide a male heir to carry on the family existence. And, and, and furthermore, if we think about Sarai specifically, not only is this like burning within her this desire to be the kind of woman that she's always expected to be, but God has promised. That they would have a child, that they would have a son who would be the heir, that would begin this great nation, a a multitude of peoples would come from them. And yet, it's been 10 years and this hasn't happened. And so, Sarai has a sick heart from hope deferred and she gets clever. She considers a technicality. She, She thinks, God promised Abram a son, but he never promised that I would be the mother of the son. Maybe it should be that we avail ourselves of Hagar to accomplish this thing. Maybe I, I, should, I should be sacrificial and allow my husband to take this other woman so that these things can be fulfilled. And if, still, we, we see this as like a totally oppressive thing, but Sarai likely thought of this as a gift to Hagar. She was lifting Hagar out of slavery into the status of being a wife of the head of the household. This was upward mobility for the lowly. And so Sarai was wise in the ways of the world. But the devil is the ruler of this world. And the Apostle Paul says that the wisdom of this world is folly with God in First Corinthians chapter 3. And so she is doing that which seems right in her own eyes. But if you read the book of Judges, you know that when people start doing that which is right in their own eyes, it's ruinous. But still, many of, many of us understand Sarai deeply. We're empathetic to her. We, you, you have desires, some of them holy desires. And yet you've been following God for years, and these desires haven't come to pass. And, and so you experience these temptations all the time to take the path of the world to obtain your blessings. There are other ways to be fulfilled than this excruciating life of waiting in hope. In your heart, like Sarai's, is sick from hope being deferred. Many of you have been single for a long time and desperately want to be married, but God has yet to provide for you a spouse, and so you start to make little compromises, right? Maybe the match on that app isn't a Christian, but he pretends just enough to to soothe your conscience, to allow you to continue, or maybe you're just so concerned that in this culture, you won't be able to find someone who will date you to the long term up to marriage without you making compromises in terms of sexual purity that you know God has called you to. And so, so you cross lines that, that you didn't want to. But it's all in the name of, of this greater good, of, of your happiness, of you obtaining this blessing, of you reaching this, uh, this peak of having a family. And isn't that what God wants for me? I mean, many of you in the room understand Sarai even more literally. In, infertility plagues many of our homes and the calls for patience And faithfulness and serious consideration of how to respond to it are challenging. Luckily for us, we don't live in a culture that that preaches the sort of bigamy of Genesis 16. And so we don't avail ourselves of such wicked things. But we still have temptations toward a deep and unwavering bitterness toward God. Or toward those who can conceive. We deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves that our wants, our needs... And that our desires are rights. And all the while Satan is there to remind us that God is the oppressor who has stripped us of our happiness. Now, I don't want you to mishear me. that The application of this text isn't don't be creative when it comes to solving problems. This is particularly because... The thing Sarai is trying to creatively bring about is the fulfillment of a literal promise that God has given her family. And I would be shocked if God promised any of you in this room children or health or a spouse or a promotion, right? What God has promised to his church through Christ is actually more general than that, but also more beautiful than any of those things. He has promised us that his people will be unable to be separated from his love in Romans 8.39. He's pro- promised us eternal life with him in John 3.16. He's promised us a day in which there will be freedom from suffering and sin and the end of all mourning and crying and death forever in Revelation chapter 21. He's promised us that we will inherit his kingdom all throughout the New Testament and he has promised us that we will suffer in this life in Philippians 1.29. And so hope deferred, though it makes the heart sick, is a feature and not a bug of the Christian life. And that, I'm here to tell you, is a beautiful and horrible blessing that God has given us. So anyway, Sarai pitches this idea to Abram, right? Here's Hagar, my servant, take her, be united to her, take her as a wife. And Abram, like Adam, listens to the voice of his wife, to his downfall. Now, don't mishear me. It isn't a sin for husbands to listen to the voice of their wives. And all the wives said, amen. Um, it, it's it's not a sin to listen to the voice of your wife. Uh, in fact, there's many pictures in the scriptures of godly, wise, and wonderful wives in in. Encouraging their husbands to take the path of righteousness. But Adam and Eve's sin has forever and will forever until glory fracture and confuse the relationships between men and women, specifically in the home. And it began by Eve being deceived and offering her husband that which tempted her. Adam's failure in the garden was that he didn't correct his wife, that he didn't lovingly rip the fruit out of her hand, throw it on the ground, stomp the serpent, and take his wife into her arms and remind her of the things that God had given them. That that he understands why she was tempted to believe, but that, in fact, God's word has better for them. And since that moment, husbands have been cursed with dysfunction with dysfunction that inhibits our ability to lead our wives and love our wives and correct our wives in the ways that God would have us, especially when we know it will create conflict, when it will embarrass her, or when it will prolong her suffering. And all the husbands said, amen. God, God didn't tell Abram that the son had to come from Sarai, but Abram knew God well enough to know that that is surely what God meant. There's no point yet in the passage where in the scriptures where God specifically says Sarai will be the mother of this child of promise. But Abram knew that's what he meant. He knew that God wasn't a God who supported bigamy. We know that in the New Testament we're told that Abram had like an unbelievable awareness of the law of God even though the law of God had not yet been given at Sinai. And and moreover he knew that God wasn't a God who wanted people to try to do the things that only he could do. The blessing of a son wasn't a problem for Sarai to solve, but it was a miracle for God to perform. And Abram knew that. I'm convinced Abram knew that. And yet human impatience and cowardice and dysfunction, even when it's sincere, dysfunctional love for others, can at times lead all of us down a path that isn't the one that God has for us. We can all be like Abram in a moment. All those things that I mentioned a moment before that God has promised his church, one of the keys that we have to remember is that you can't make any of those things happen. You can't bring them about. And anything that you are convinced will meet one of those needs in your heart or in the world is, is nothing but a dangerous counterfeit. It is fruit from the wrong tree. It is the curse and not the blessing, no matter how juicy and sweet. Consistently, from Genesis to Revelation, There is this urging that the scriptures give us, and it is this, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. This is a consistent theme in the Bible because God is a God who provides for his people, and he provides for his people in his time, and God is not slow to fulfill his promises, but neither is he in a hurry. And in the in-between, we are called to patience. Now let's read the rest of the passage and focusing specifically on the conflict surrounding Hagar. It says in verses 4 through 6, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her. So as soon as Abram takes Hagar as his wife and they conceive a child, problems ensue. There's all sorts of problems in the household. And this is important for us to know because when we seek to establish the things of God on our own, we will make a mess of our lives and the lives of those around us. Hagar, though her status is elevated, she gets caught up between her two masters. She's afflicted, and yet her heart is also corrupted in this, looking upon Sarai with contempt. And Sarai and Abram, like Adam and Eve, they start pointing fingers, deferring blame and responsibility on anyone but themselves. And in the end, everyone is worse off for this situation. The household is violated by conflict and sexual confusion. Hagar is violated by Sarai's fierce anger. Sarai is violated by Hagar's pride and contempt. And Abram is violated by his wife who blames him for her bad idea. Take heed, brothers and sisters, before you compromise yourself with worldly wisdom. The fruit of the tree which we are to avoid looks good and tastes good, but it is poison. Let's keep reading. Verses 7 through 16, it says, Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, which is on the way back to Egypt. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her, The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against his, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I love this. I love this passage so much. Here we have Hagar. A victim of the sins of others, and of the circumstances and consequences of her own sin, her, her life a mess. She runs in shame and fear and sorrow, and God follows her. follows her. The way the Hebrew reads from that transition of, of Sarai afflicting Hagar to God following her, it's almost like one idea. like fleeing, he followed. This idea that the angel of the Lord is just pursuing Hagar as she flees, as she runs away, as she's destitute and lonely and overwhelmed, the Lord is following her. This is good news, brothers and sisters. The angel of the Lord in this passage marks only the second time so far in the Bible where God is drawing near to people in a way that's like anthropomorphic. And the last time, and the only time since then, is when God is found walking in the garden after Adam and Eve ate the fruit they weren't supposed to eat. And he says, where are you? And here, God comes to Hagar, who, like Adam and Eve, is running away from blessing. Because in spite of all of the affliction and the sin within Abram's house, what we already know is Abram's house is the blessed house. And, and blessing his house yields blessing. And cursing it yields curses. And Hagar is running away from the household of blessing like Adam and Eve ran away from God when they sinned in the garden. And like Adam and Eve, Hagar feels exposed. She feels alone. She feels fearful and worried. She feels naked. And God draws near to her. He commands her to go back to Abram's house to submit to Sarai which sounds like bad news, but then he makes her a promise. He makes her a promise that her offspring will become great, a multitude of multitudes like Abram's offspring will be. This is a blessing a lot like the promise given to Abram, the difference being that that Hagar's line will not be the line of blessing, which is explained in how Ishmael and his descendants are described, But it's still good news. Here's this woman who was a slave, who's been afflicted, and now she's going to have a legacy. And Hagar responds to God's pursuit of her in in this beautiful act of faith. She recognizes that God has seen her in all of her brokenness, and then she worships him, and she gives him a name, the God who sees. And Hagar is the only person in the whole Bible who ever gives God a name. And it's a name that is good news for all of us. Whether we're like Sarai or we're like Abram or we're like Hagar, God is the God who sees us. He sees us in our brokenness, in our affliction, in our failure, and in our weakness, and he comes after us. Maybe following God has been too hard for you, and you're tempted to turn and go back to Egypt like Hagar was. Maybe you've been mistreated Or feel that your sin has taken you too far from where you thought you were supposed to be. Maybe you've already started to run, and it's just by God's providence that you're even here this morning. But when Hagar was fleeing, God found her. He found her in her lowest moment, and He called her home. He found her in her weakest moment, and he looked upon her, not with contempt or judgment, but with compassion and love and promised better things for her in the future than what she had in the past. In the past, she was a slave. She got caught up in this big mess. She was mistreated and abused, and even when she thought her status was being elevated, it turned out to be misery. But in the future, she's going to have a legacy beyond this episode of shame. Hagar is like Israel is going to be in Egyptian slavery. In fact, Hagar, Moses is using Hagar as a device to prepare us for the exodus. Here is an Egyptian in a foreign land serving foreign masters, being mistreated, and in her affliction, God sees her, finds her, and promises her better things. It sounds a lot like the people of Israel in Egypt. Hagar is also a lot like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. An adulterer who God finds by a spring of water and promises her the things of the kingdom, knowing all of her brokenness. The Samaritan woman's testimony is a lot like Hagar's. She says, come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. He's the God who sees. Hagar is like you and she's like me. She is like everyone whom the Lord loves because she requires God's love. She's desperate for God's forgiveness. She's hopeless without God's promises and she needs the insight into what God sees because what her eyes see are only shame. Abram and Sarai needed those things too. The next chapter is gonna tell us how God sees them when he cuts another covenant with them, even though they failed him immediately after the first covenant. God's going to come back, and he's going to give them more promises, more expectation. See, the God who sees, sees with complete sight, and he sees that which we cannot see in ourselves. Many of us look in the mirror, and we see a failure, and he sees an object of mercy. We see shame, and he sees the glorious grace of redemption. We see an orphan, and he sees a son. And Paul says that when we take hold of Christ by faith, when we take hold of the redemption that God has given us through his Son, that though we were destitute slaves to the elementary principles of the world, he says in Galatians 4, 6, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We, we get to cry out, Abba, Father, like Hagar cries out to the God who sees, that God sees us in our affliction. When we take hold of him by faith, he comes into our hearts and he gives us new speech. And because of this, we can have our hopes deferred. Though hopes deferred make the heart sick, we can have hopes deferred until the return of Christ and we can bear many afflictions along the way. The gospel, when it takes root in our hearts, it makes our hearts such that even affliction and suffering and deferred hope produce even more hope. Romans 5, 1 through 5 says this, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, like Abram, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given for us. This is good news. On our own, we can never have our hopes fulfilled. We can strive with all of our might for little counterfeit versions of heavenly things. But only God in Christ can give us the desires of our heart. Paul says that our hope is the hope of the glory of God the hope of the glory of God, God whose son bled and died that we might be forgiven and made sons. He can transform us to have this sort of hope. God who has given his son of promise that we too might become sons of promise. The proverb I quoted earlier, Proverbs 13, that verse says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but in the very next line it says, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. So it may be hard to wait on the Lord. We may suffer as we serve him and wait for him, but Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, and Christ is the desire fulfilled. He is the tree of life. Let us never settle for the fruit from the other tree. Let us never labor to be satisfied on that which poisons us, but let us hope only in Christ, resting on his promises alone. Christ died to make our sick hearts alive and full of his spirit so that we can cry out to God as a father. Christ has risen from the grave to give us hope of victory and life forever with him, though sometimes life feels like nothing but death. And Christ will return and feed us forever, though we are desperate and hungry now. And in the waiting and the patience, we will grow in endurance. And in that endurance, we will grow in character. And that character, as it strengthens, will empower us to resist those things which seem right in our own eyes so that we can walk by faith and not by sight. The endurance will allow our hearts and, and, and our eyes that deceive us to realize that God's eyes look upon us with steadfast love and his heart for us is gentle and lowly, and so we grow in endurance, and we grow in character, and then as we do those, we grow in hope, and Paul says that we hope not in the blessings of this life, not in the satisfaction that we can gain from wealth, or children, or relationships, or good health, or or great travel, or, or whatever it is, but our hope is in the glory of God, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, meaning that we hope in the reality that the glory of God goes forth in the world when Christ is preached as Lord and Savior, that that is our hope, that the glory of God will be inching ever closer to that day when it covers the whole world as the waters cover the sea. And and in that day, we will have to hope no more. There is coming a day, brothers and sisters, when you won't need hope. We will wait no more in that day. We will not have to question our eyesight anymore and that which seems right in our eyes anymore because in that day, we will see him in full when he comes. And the scriptures say that when he comes and we see him, that we will be made like him in that day. All of our hopes come to fruition. All of our desires met. A better home with better foundations and a better source of light even than the sun as the glory of God will be our light in that day. And so let us live with eyes set upon heavenly things. Our hope set on Christ alone and consider everything else less than, knowing that whether we are a lot like Abram in his cowardice, Sarai in her craftiness, or Hagar in her affliction, that we have a God who sees. And what he sees for his people is steadfast love, redemption, and hope of being made like him. So let's pray, and then let's feast together on the hope of the glory of God that we have in Christ our Lord.